Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we will do our best to answer them during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and ZDNet. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker and one of the most influential business and innovation thought leaders on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm joined here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar. And as you know, he is one of the top followers on C for CIOs and CMOs on Twitter. He's a business press, um, pretty much standby on a lot of business TV, and more importantly, an awesome friend and co-founder of the show. But it's not about us. We're talking about awesome trends, awesome topics, and what's next. And what better to talk about the future of education, the future of the world, than our next guest uh, in terms of how we learn. So. What do you think, Bala? Who do we have next? What a privilege. Ray, I think it's been a year we've been wanting to have our first guest on the show. So I think I would have had President Obama perhaps here before having Hans Lambert, the Dean of the Division of Continuing Edu Education and University Extension at, at Harvard University. The division serves 30,000 learners annually, and it, and it includes the Harvard Extension School, Harvard Summer School, Harvard Professional Development Programs, Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement, and the Crimson Summer Academy. Previously, Dean Lambert served as Associate Provost of CSU Online at Colorado State University. Prior to that, Dean Lambert was founder and interim CEO of CSU's Global Campus, a new public online university. He served as Associate Vice President of Economic Development at CSU as well. During his business career, Dean Lambert helped with 25 startups in 12 countries. He also helped an additional 15 startups during his time at CSU. He teaches strategy, entrepreneurship, and business plan development. One of the smartest people in the education space. You can follow Hunt, graciously call you Hunt, on Twitter at Hunt Lambert, H-U-N-T-L-A-M-B-E-R-T. Welcome, Hunt, to Disrupt TV. Oh, thank you so much. It's, uh, I'm so glad we finally got this done. It's been way too long to get on the schedule, and I'm really excited. Thank you, sir. Yeah, no, we're really excited to talk to you about this because we're at a time where there's so much pace of change, innovation's happening so quickly, people worried about what's happening. And there's this concept out there that um, you're evangelizing literally about the 60 year curriculum, right? And I think it's really important. So what is it? Uh, and how do you assemble the pieces to get there? Because that sounds like 60 years. I mean, that's a long time. So what is the 60 year curriculum? It's, it's a fascinating thing. When I was asked uh, at one point, uh, what does Harvard think about this idea of 60-year curriculum? And I said, you know, Harvard thinks it's fantastic, except for the 60 and the curriculum part. <laughs> and so <laughs> this is something still relatively new to higher ed. Uh, but I didn't get there directly. When I was at Colorado State University, we had 750,000 Coloradoans who never finished college and we have a knowledge economy there. And we asked how amongst all these state budget deficits do we serve these learners? And the answer was go online. My background in industry was digital communication, wireless. And so we went online and Colorado State focused on this unserved adult learner. Uh, I grew it to about 3000 students and break even. And now it's at 25,000 students in year 10. Wow. And it's, it's like, I think the market's trying to tell us something. <laughs> that they want high quality public education at affordable price, and they came. And then I was invited to help the research campus and research faculty do a version of that that worked for campus, which is obviously much more controversial than building your own university from scratch. And we made that work, and then Harvard called. And, you know, I, uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I was like, be a dean at Harvard? Are you kidding? Of course. <laughs> what time? You know, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I didn't ask when do I start. I said, what time today do you want me to start? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I ended up at Harvard and very quickly, I looked at my division and I said, okay, we've got this summer school. We've got open access courses, uh, some of which are online. We've got learning and retirement. And I said, how young is our youngest student? I was told 12. I said, how old is our oldest student? They said, 92. And I said, I think they're trying to tell us something, that there's something different than going to school for four years undergrad and two years full-time. I think they're trying to tell us something. 
And early in my tenure at Harvard, I was at a meeting with Gary Matkin from UC Irvine, and he had written a paper that he titled The 60-Year Curriculum. Yep, yep, yep. And I literally said, that's it. That's what they're trying to tell us. And so I jumped on it and started funding some activity and supporting some activity and generating a national conversation. I think the single most important thing to understand about the 60-year curriculum, it is not a 60-year curriculum for somebody who enters college now. It is saying that in this future we're describing where you live to be 100 years old, where you're likely to work 70 or 80 years to save enough money to retire, and where the half-life of jobs in a radioactive sense is about 10 years, meaning half of all jobs advertised in a year didn't exist 10 years earlier, which is a continuing trend. You gotta go back to school your whole life. And it's not learning a new assembly line job, it's knowledge work. And so what 60-year curriculum says is, if you're gonna play on the global stage in education, you have to have curriculum that appeals to people from age 15 to 75. Indeed. And it has to be meaningful to them at that time in their life, given their goals at that time. And it by no means means the four-year degree goes away or PhDs go away. It means you may choose that as part of your journey. So 247 is gone. 247 is yeah. gone is what you're saying. It gets yeah. blown up. It's so. blown up. And, and I would encourage anybody who can do it to do it. And it works almost perfectly for 30% of the population. That leaves 70% of the population needing something else, and that's who I've been trying to serve. Sure. Now, in the process of helping, you know, two, three dozen startups uh, grow, working with entrepreneurs, uh, being an entrepreneur, um, and you've had tremendous success building and growing businesses. How, how did that experience help shave this unquenchable thirst and passion you have to champion lifelong learning? So it's really very simple. If you want to be successful as an entrepreneur, find a problem that isn't solved, that serves people who have money to pay you if you solve it, articulate your value proposition to them incredibly well, and execute with a cost structure where you can make money doing it. And so what I just described fits that perfectly. Here's this huge unserved or underserved needs, because the private for-profits went into this long before us. Uh, but I would say they underserved that market. Their quality wasn't high enough and their economic model wasn't productive enough. So here's this huge need. Here's adults who are willing to pay for it themselves. They don't always need federal financial aid or, uh, or support from their company. And if you can price it, particularly like we did at Global Campus, mm. they will come. And if you do it really well, it will grow. And, and so it's exactly an entrepreneurial model. It's find a big, hairy, audacious goal uh, to solve a big problem that exists and solve it. And sure. if you make money, great. And, and you have a colleague of yours or, or someone that works at university who famously said, this is Dr. Clay Christensen, you may have gravity, but gravity doesn't care. I think affordable, accessible education could be substituted for gravity. And that sentence still holds true. Yes, and if you look at us extension schools in particular, you'll find big public universities and Harvard and a few others incredibly affordable by normal standards. So, you know, who knew you can get a Harvard undergraduate degree all four years for 55,000? Well, you can through the extension school. Wow. Who knew you could get a graduate wow. degree at Harvard for 32,000? And you don't have to quit your job to do it. Right, right. The vast majority of our students graduate with no debt at all, with a Harvard credential that they really earned. And now we're taking all the elements of that and breaking them up, modularizing them, and reassembling them to serve particular needs. It started with our graduate certificates. Now we've added 140 professional development programs. And it's saying, tell us what you need right now in your life, given the time and place constraints of your life. And we'll either recommend ourselves or somebody else to help you get that done. And particularly when you add that second one, where you say, I want the lifelong relationship with you, right. but I know you're not gonna buy all your product from us. You're not gonna get all your education from Harvard, but I'll send you to somewhere else, be it UC Irvine, University of Washington, Columbia. If they have a better program at a better price than us, we'll tell you to go there and then come back to us for the next need. Terrific, terrific. So, so does that four-year degree go away? 
like, do we need it anymore? I mean, wh why, why do we, so why do we cling around this four year degree? I've got a junior in high school. Why do we cling around this four year degree? Right. I mean, like, is it, is it the social experience? Is it the common bonding? Is it like, should we just put everybody into work programs or, and then they go figure out what they want to learn? So I don't think the four year degree goes away at all. I don't okay. even think it shrinks except with the demographics that are shrinking right now. Yep. I still think the four-year degree is the best thing a 17 or 18-year-old can do because mm -hmm. the maturation, the social experience, the intense okay. learning experience can't be replicated once you're in the workforce. And I think we should push as hard as we can to keep 30% of our population going to that traditional four-year degree because it works. I mean, look at the U.S. economy. Look at the world economy that's been built on that education. You'd be silly to say it doesn't work. Every indicator says it works. But for the other 70%, I'd say take an eight-year degree. And oh, eight what would that look like? So an eight-year degree, this is just another packaging for the 60-year curriculum. An eight-year degree would say, I come out of high school and I get a job. And I, in the summer before the job, I take an intense boot camp on how to be a good employee. I show up on time. Nice. You know, take care of your confidential information of your employer, understand a little bit about politics, and go to work. And go to work for a company that will pay for you to go back to school half time. And then start taking courses at night while working full time. And in eight years, you can constantly tune your work and your education to align, and you will graduate with your four-year degree with no debt and a good paying job and a life going forward. And for everybody else, for vast majority, honestly, of the U.S. population today, that makes way more sense than taking four years out of your life to go uh, right out of high school. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Hunt, you mentioned, you know, the lifespan of a typical job is converging down to a decade or less. Um, and you have technologies like artificial intelligence. And we've been talking about this particular technology for 50 plus years, but if you look at the last five to 10 years, the amount of innovation and enhancements in that space has really made it a practical use in business today. When you look at emerging technologies like Internet of Things, augmented virtual reality, 3D printing, we have distributed ledger experts that are gonna be following you on the show. The, the, the combination of these emerging technologies is really opening up whole new business model innovation opportunities and certainly modernization of legacy processes and businesses today. What will education look like a decade from now? <laughs> all of these technologies, by, by the way, you only have a few minutes to answer that. <laughs> I think the successful educators uh, 10 years from now will look very much like the direction that ASU is going. They will fundamentally define themselves as great global universities and they will have four-year degrees and they'll have PhDs and they'll have lots of residential master's programs and they'll have tons of online programs and they'll have tons of modular pieces that can plug in anywhere across them and they'll be connected to their community colleges and things like uh, has Phil Kamarni and, and Phil Long, who's on the show, have been talking about there'll be an underlying blockchain type network that's a trust network with the student that lets the student own the credential across schools and ASU will be enabling students from all over the world to put these pieces together. And, and that future university will still have a great research budget, a great faculty, a ton of technology to enable students to get human-based learning with technology enhancement. And they'll have a thousand on-ramps and a thousand off-ramps. And that's the wow. big constraint that's built into the construct of higher ed today is the only on-ramps and off-ramps are defined by a very old um, higher Ed Act. They're, they're written into Title IV and how funding works. It has nothing to do with the needs of the economy and the needs of the student. So there's a mismatch. There's a massive mismatch in, in, in content and demand? Yeah, but ASU is the first really big public university that says, we get that mismatch and we're going to build for the whole thing. Yeah. You know, Harvard is small compared to the sum of these big publics. I'm pushing us into the 60-year curriculum because it's obvious to me it's going to happen. Harvard ought to do it. And honestly, if Harvard does it, then lots of other schools like CS ASU have permission to do it. And the more that do it, the stronger our economy will be in the world. So is it, is it fair for me to view ASU as an Android operating system and Harvard as an Apple operating system? One is open uh, and can plug into other platforms. 
and the other is more closed? Maybe, but I'd, I'd use a slightly different distinction. I would say that Harvard is fundamentally built on exclusivity, and it has an inclusivity arm through the extension school. Okay. The great public universities are fundamentally built on inclusivity, particularly the land grants where I used to be. It's about inclusivity and outreach, and they have some exclusive programs that have evolved from that. And what I'm saying is that inclusivity is going to win. And if that's the openness of Android, then, then I understand your analogy. Okay. Okay. Terrific. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, uh, yeah, no, they're, they're different. They're different models in that. And then, I mean, and as what, you know, as part of that technology shift in, in terms of what uh, Bala was saying, it's what, what about things like AI? Like, does that change how we learn? Does that change the way we look at curriculum? Do we just, create mass personalization at scale in our curriculums where we, we match you based on how quickly you learn uh, or, or, or what style you learn in? So I'll give you a tangible example. We're using AI right now to answer that question. So we, we are on a banner system and we have lots of banner data, but we took 20 years of that banner data and we made it visible to Einstein analytics in Salesforce. And we asked Einstein Analytics to tell us the patterns of success and failure based on the order people took all their open access courses in. And we had no idea what we'd get. Guess what? There are very distinct patterns and they have very statistically significant different success and failure rates. So now our advisors have AI input to help advise students what course to take next to have a higher probability to succeed. So not everybody needs to be a data scientist. What do you mean? <laughs> no, everybody doesn't. Although a lot more are going to be because, you know, <laughs> no, I was just joking. I was, just, yeah, I was just joking on a matching profile level. It's like, yeah, look, well, everybody's what, trying to take this course on data scientists. Well, everybody's yeah. worried about what jobs will look like in the post AI world and legitimately so, but you know, we worried a lot about what jobs would look like after we put machines into fields and we went mm -hmm. from 90% agricultural employment to 1% agricultural employment. Well, if you watch, everybody got jobs. We have near full employment on our economy in the U.S. right now. We're AI, just a little bit. All, we're just a little bit all heavy since we're not doing any manual work. <laughs> and that seems to work for us too. <laughs> so, it's you know we're living longer than ever and happier than ever. Uh, but yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, my my question to you is if and again, sorry, these are heavy questions that we could spend the entire twenty minutes on, but. If there's one thing you can change about higher education, one thing, what would you do next? I think the biggest change actually has to come in public policy. In, in rewriting the Higher Education Act, I would completely reconstruct Title IV. And I would ah. make Title IV a funding eligibility to the individual across their life. And I would not tie it to being admitted to a school. I would tie it to some quality indicators of the school because that's very important. Regional accreditation is a good standard if you're a school like us, but it's not the only one. And so I would break Title IV out and make it an individual government benefit paid by taxes that you can use whenever it's most productive to you in your life. And then there'd be money flowing into the 60-year curriculum market. And there was an experiment by the Department of Higher Ed in this around boot camps that was actually pretty successful in providing some Title IV money to that. And I think that's a lead indicator. That's the sort of catalyst if you want to open the doors of higher ed to a much broader reach. Can you believe it's almost 55 years old, Title, like the, the Higher Education Act? That is crazy. It does need a good update and a good kick in the butt. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it really has barely been updated since the post-World War II Industrial Revolution. Oh my God, this is okay, amazing. One more, one more question. How do people learn more about the 60-year curriculum? Are you working on papers, books, webinars, how, how do we learn more? So there's a large group of deans like me that are working on it collaboratively and we've brought in industry as well and it's a global effort. Um, I've hosted two workshops here at Harvard to try to figure out what the heck it is and then try to write down what we think it is. <laughs> and there's a book, uh, we have a publisher who's agreed to write our joint book coming out of that workshop. That's be our first attempt. One thing I do wanna warn listeners of though and, and I'm gonna use an analogy that won't work for everybody. But when you ask why Christianity spread around the world so fast when it did, the answer was it was inclusive. The nature of Christianity in the earliest days adapted to the local culture and language, and you could bring it in without it upsetting. We're trying to do that in higher ed. 
We're trying to do that with the 60-year curriculum. The point is, it isn't a something. It's just the future of how you are. And each school has to think of it as a concept and an enabling set of principles and apply it to their mission and the communities they serve. And no school needs to go do the whole 60-year curriculum. Just pick which ones you think are important to your mission and your students and do those really well. Sage advice. Sure. That is wonderful. We are here with Hunt Lambert, Dean, Division of Continuing Education and University Extension at Harvard University. You can follow him on Twitter at Hunt Lambert, L-A-M-B-E-R-T, uh, and find out more about what's going on with the 60-year curriculum, and also check it out as well on the website. So thanks a lot for being on the show, Hunt. Hope to see you in person. Thank you so much. You were terrific. Thank you. Thank you, sir. What a great vision. And, you know, uh, Hunt is championing that. And again, he has an entire consortium of educators and, and business leaders who are going to help with that. And so, so Vala, we're, we're only going to do world-class institutions today. Is that, is that kind of how this works? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, the good news is I have many, many years of learning, which is, which is, uh, which is, which is inspiring. And, and, and I'm hopeful that uh, it, it'll, it'll help all of us. Our next guest, by the way, I thought I had the coolest title <laughs> until our next guest and now chief digital evangelist just doesn't seems passe <laughs> sheila warren blockchain and distributed ledger technology at world economic forum sheila began her career as a wall street attorney before turning her uh, philanthropy and nonprofit tech over a decade ago Sheila has represented banks, philanthropists, and progressive nonprofits. Most recently, Sheila was Vice President of Strategic Alliances and General Counsel at TechSoup, the global society enterprise that has connected civil society organizations around the world with over $9 billion in donations and tech-based resources. Previous to that, Sheila also designed and launched NGO Source, a service focused on international grant making. She's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law, so we have a theme going on with the show. You can follow Sheila on Twitter at Sheila underscore Warren, W-A-R-R-E-N. Welcome, Sheila, to Disrupt TV. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Hey, thanks a lot. So every year when I'm sitting in Davos, right, blockchain becomes important, gets more important, and then suddenly last year it kind of tapered off. So this is why I'm asking you this question from this perspective. Where are we in the state of blockchain? Have we moved beyond the hype and people are now just heads down trying to actually solve real world problems? Or are we a little bit past that and we're starting to see some benefits of blockchain in terms of public good as well as like interesting things in industry? Yeah, well, I think it's both. I mean, I think we had the phase of, you know, Bitcoin. Why would you buy Bitcoin? Are you crazy? Why are you funding criminals? You know, then we had the like, why aren't you buying Bitcoin? What's wrong with you? Everyone's buying Bitcoin, you know? And then we kind of got to this place of like, all right, everyone calm down a little bit. Let's get normal about this. So I think in the cryptocurrency or currency or payments arena, it's the second point you raised. We're actually starting to see some of the benefits. It's a bit more advanced because of course, Bitcoin was the first app built on the blockchain, right? So- Correct. It's had a bit longer to kind of season and get itself out there and promote itself, let's say. In terms of the other use cases, I think we're in that heavy build phase. We're trying to make some of these protocols more scalable, more user-friendly, focus a bit on UX and UI. You know, how do we actually make this consumer-facing meaningfully? These kinds of things are happening. But it's a huge build year. I, for one, was thrilled to see a little bit less crypto craze in Davos. Um, I mean, for the standpoint of like, it gave me a little bit of time to actually do things in Davos besides <laughs> just run from place to place. But also it's just, it's a rational correction, right? I mean, we had, after the craziness around ICOs, we needed to have a little bit of a correction, a little quiet end of the space. People could actually go into that build mode and really start to focus. Sure, sure. Well, I'm interested, what drew you to World Economic Forum, which by the way, both Ray and I are huge fans of, if you see my Twitter feed, I think about 10% of it is just, you know, repeating world, uh, insights from, from, from WEF. But what drew you to the organization? And, and, and specifically, how did you develop your interest in terms of distributed ledgers and blockchain? Yeah, well, those are very different things, I must confess. So, so maybe I'll start with the latter first. Uh, I became interested in blockchain when I was GC at TechSoup, General Counsel at TechSoup. And we had a database of sensitive information on nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And the CTO and I became very concerned about uh, the hackability of that database oh, and yeah. how we might protect information on activists and others who were doing this incredibly important work around the world and who really needed that kind of security in a way that 
people don't really think about. It's one thing to have your bank account hacked. It's another thing to have your identity hacked and stolen or your address information revealed to a party that really wants to do physical harm. So we were very and this is the ultimate nonprofit tech marketplace. So yeah. Exactly right. And so I got into this from, from that way. Uh, and thinking about how might this technology, with its immutability, with its, uh, its, its basically enhanced security features via the cryptography, how might that actually benefit people like activists or civil society organizations on the ground? Yeah. And so that's the orientation for me. It seemed like a, an amazing opportunity and a frontier to explore. Now, the forum, uh, in part, I came here because I really believed, and I still believe, I think this is proven to be true, the forum has a unique voice and a unique brand in technology, <laughs> simply because of its objectivity, right? We're not, we don't push product. We're not out there building a POC. I'm not running a node or a protocol. And because of that, I'm able to be very practical and pragmatic in the voice that I bring to the table and the forum brings to the table about this technology. So the first paper we did, we published in April 2018 after Davos 2018, which Ray, you might remember, I mean, it, you couldn't like walk, <laughs> not even a foot, you couldn't walk Strom, like Strom Beck had the whole thing taken <laughs> over. I mean, Unreal, like, the promenade I mean, was just all blockchain everywhere, right? Promenade was all blockchain. All blockchain. So we wrote a paper called Blockchain Beyond the Hype because I felt like it was really important that someone kind of pop, you know, pop that bubble and say, yep. this technology is really important. It's not yep. going anywhere. The potential is not being overstated. However... We're not there yet. We need time to experiment, time to really explore the technology. We need a build, a significant build phase. That hasn't happened. So let's get real about this. Let's not draw a ton of money into a bunch of hokey, you know, projects that are overhyped. And let's start focusing and narrowing down and honing in on the actual use cases and applications that are going to make this technology transformative. That's terrific. That's terrific. And I remember we were doing live broadcasts in 2018, <laughs> interviewing executives. We did maybe two dozen live broadcasts, so Disrupt TV on the road. And you're, you couldn't finish a sentence without watching and serving. Because the buzzword, right? it's the drink word, right? For the event. Exactly like, right. Drink, yes. when you, drink when you hear blockchain. <laughs> Depending <laughs> on your goals, because you wouldn't last very long. <laughs> Ray, Ray and I are fortunate enough to actually work with leading edge change agents where even in 2018, while people thought it was hype, and certainly people were talking about it, we had dozens of use cases beyond cryptocurrency. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in fact, our next guest will talk about that. The, the project he started at, uh, you know, started in 2017. So, so anyway, it, 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 incredible noise around, but there's definite real work that's happening. So, but, but let's talk about the use cases that are working, right? A lot of it is just a little bit of blockchain and a lot of everything else. Um, and a lot of them is really, I mean, you, you see a couple of patterns that emerge. Um, I'll let you share what, what you see the patterns are uh, that you think are, are taking hold for folks. Yeah, well, I think from the very beginning, there was this concept of, well, crypto, of course, so that's continued. Yep. And I'll say crypto, move it over here. Side. Then I think supply chain, the, another really big one, and digital ID. So digital identity, I think, is where we're seeing a lot of the focus of attention now, both in the academic work that's happening and in the use case build. Supply chain, I think the reality is that most supply chain oriented companies have experimented with this technology, whether they are public about it or not. It might be a private chain just internally to their own company or maybe a couple of their competitors that are working together. We're seeing a lot of consortium build in that space, whether it's Moby, the Automotive Alliance, whether it's work happening with Walmart and some of their suppliers, all this kind of stuff's happening. We're actually publishing uh, shortly a toolkit designed to help people who are deploying blockchain for supply chain really think about what are the considerations you have to focus on, whether it's cybersecurity, whether it's digital ID, whether it's, you know, whatever it might be. Digital identity, I think, is this thing that, you know, it, it's been a topic in the space, as you know, for not just the blockchain space, but the tech space for a very long time. Self-sovereign ID, ownership of data, and whether it's healthcare or whatever else. So we're seeing a lot of activity in that space that's becoming quite fruitful. Right. And we're also seeing things around consent management that are important. Yes, exactly, right? We're right. also seeing things around validation, verification of proof and chains, right? Whether it's yep. land titles or right, just verification of employment, skill yes. sets, right, That's on the right. HR side. Um, but but just but they're using just a little bit of it to say, hey, it's on the chain, and then everything else is being done on a database, and that, that's what makes this kind of funny. To, it is really funny. Like, so, but it's, but is it Ray, happening? Part of it, Ray, with the customers that I engage with, they just don't have in-house skill set. Yeah. Far enough, wide enough, deep enough to really understand scale, security, integration challenges to bring some of this art of the possible to life. Um, 
but my question to you, Sheila, how does a company engage with uh, World Economic Forum to share their considered practices and to build a community where people can learn from each other? What's the process where they can engage with you and your 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 resident experts so that they can you know um, uh, become more part of a community and and help with adoption and understanding again i I'm, i don't I'm, i don't want to use best practice considered practice but how do they engage with you yeah well so all of our content is public so when our toolkit for example for supply chain is published it's completely public on our website uh, the whole point is for people to be able to pull it down and make it very usable and we always welcome feedback via any mechanism, there's, a, a, you, there's a, a place to give feedback there. You can reach me on Twitter, of course, as well for those kinds of things. But generally, we are always looking to build our project community of experts in the space. So the extent that a company has a blockchain, the solo isolated blockchain person, you know, who's sitting in their office and no one understands them, we understand you, you know, we're happy to talk to you. <laughs> and we'd love to hear what's keeping you up at night. What are the things that are really hard for you to convince your C-suite about? Like, what are the things your CEO doesn't quite seem to understand about this technology? What we're trying to do is normalize the case. So part of the role I think the forum can play and does play is in this multi-stakeholder environment. We talk to governments, talk to companies, academics, civil society, everybody, right? Journalists, everybody. And so what, is, what are those things that need to be brought up above the hubbub, above the fray, and surfaced as these principles around use of this technology that are common? You know, that are common across the use cases, that are common across industry, that are common across sector. And those insights are what I think we seek to gain from the project communities that we engage with. Sure, and you're San Francisco based right now. That's right. Are there events that World Economic Forum hosts that are specific to the blockchain distributed ledger technologies where business leaders, educators can come and, 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 and speak and, and share their stories? Yeah, if people are interested in getting involved in our projects, then we welcome that input. We do have invite only, unfortunately, events that take place around all of our various work streams. Right now we have work streams going on on supply chain, digital ID, crypto, of course. We have one on government transparency and public procurement for anti-corruption purposes. We're gonna be launching one on regulation, how governments should be thinking about their own readiness, like how ready is their country or jurisdiction for this technology. And that's everything from mobile penetration, Digital, digital wallet adoption, things like that, but also regulation. Is your regulatory environment friendly to this technology or is it really not friendly? And how might you think about opening up some of the restrictions to make people more able to experiment, let alone excited about it, right? So all those kinds of things. And yeah, all those projects are listed on our website and we welcome people reaching out to us to talk through how they might become more involved. Right, and this is all part of your larger fourth industrial revolution councils, right? Where that's you guys right. are going deep in on blockchain, and and these are happening in the uh, center that's out in uh, it's in San Francisco. Actually, where are you guys located? I can't in remember. In the Presidio, we're up in the Presidio. In we're, we're about I don't know how many yards, four football fields away from the Golden Gate Bridge. I can see it out my window, and uh, <laughs> and yeah, and we have councils here that focus on blockchain and DLT, AI. Uh, we look at drones, we look at autonomous urban mobility, we look at IoT, we look at data. We're trying to consider all these technologies and how they intersect with each other to create this transformation. I think, while you were talking about in your opening remarks to today's show, really about how are we going to move forward to this next industrial revolution and this new place where we think differently about labor, education, because we have these new opportunities that are opening up. Wow. Now, when we think about these like opportunities out there, right, how we democratize access to blockchain so that people can then get onto these new marketplaces, yeah. right? Because in one, on one hand, what we're really doing in your supply chain example is we've created brand new types of marketplaces where we can actually create peer-to-peer -peer networks that didn't exist before right. because yeah. of trust. And we can also and guarantee to some degree that that item, which we, we said we're going to deliver, is actually going to be delivered, right? Because we learned yeah. a lot of these really in, 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 really in the uh, dark web. Right? I mean, dark web works yeah. because of trust, right? Yeah, and so some of these right. trust principles have come in from there and we've actually applied them into where these blockchain trading networks are, are happening in, in the marketplace. Um, so how do we actually get this to be part of the critical infrastructure that governments think about in policies or, um, or industry groups think about in policies so that the marketplaces are now available so that people then have access back to something we talked about earlier in the, our, our past segment, creating an inclusive marketplace for players in that. Yeah. 
that is the question I spend a lot of my day thinking about, right? Oh, what, is okay, that? what does it mean? Yeah, worry about you, you really nailed it. Well, and so that. now I'm going to have to be mindful of our time together. What, uh, you know, what does it mean to democratize access in that way, right? Because when you think about yeah. blockchain, what a lot of people don't get, they think about Bitcoin. First, they get their head around like it's not actually a coin. You're not actually seeing, you know, they really get that. They're like a wallet, and I can lose my, oh my god, I can lose my password. Then what happens? This whole thing. So you walk them through all of that. But the okay, I got a lot of hard is, drives. You know, I have no idea where my Bitcoin is. Yeah, I mean, exactly, right? Like USB keys, uh, it seems, you know. <laughs> so this whole thing happens, right? And I think, I think what people just don't quite click into is the idea, like people will say, well, I don't know how to use blockchain. I'm like, but you're never going to know how to use blockchain. You don't know about, you know what HTTP is. You have no idea what that, you know what SSL is. You have, I know you have no idea what that is, yet you still use the internet. You still make payments online. You still use Venmo or Square Cash or whatever, right? So this is going to be a, a predominantly invisible technology. And mm -hmm. even if we do have a central bank digital currency, so on my team, we're also launching a toolkit around central bank digital currency or CBDC. How would a central bank think about digital currency? How do you think about the shift into digital payments and, and a, a parallel to fiat that is essentially digital and or in origin, right? And execution and everything. And, and people are not going to know the difference. Like if I Venmo you 20 bucks, I'm not like, oh, yeah, did you 20? And it just kind of happens, right? Similarly, this technology is going to be very back end. And what I find fascinating is right now, there is a lot of focus in energy in the space on front end, like front end facing, consumer facing interfaces. But it's really just about how you make that back end invisible. How do you get people to not be afraid of this and not even really know what's happening? And I'll tell you that the truth about this is that many companies, I wouldn't say most yet, but we're getting there, are using blockchain for something right now, today. And half their workers probably have no idea. And their yeah. consumers or customers probably have no idea, whether that's B2B or B2C. They have no idea. And that's, that's just fine. There's nothing wrong with that. So I think when we talk about this transformation, it really is about, like you say, Ray, and I think you just, you hit the nail on the head. It's that we're replacing sort of central authority trust with this community-based trust. And that gets, I think, to the question you asked about democratization. Because in my mind, if you're empowering people to own their own information, for example, if you're having new forms of notice and consent that are truly meaningful, because you have the ability to take your, your you know, ball and walk away, right, and go home in a meaningful way. But there are things like that, and you have visibility into where your information is going. You can almost see that web of where it's going. It's a very different universe, not just in marketplace creation, but in how you imagine yourself as a consumer and how you conceive of your power vis-a-vis -a, -vis a giant company. And I personally think that is extremely powerful. I think we're going to see implications and ripple effects throughout democratic institutions. Makes absolute sense. Yeah. Well, advice to business leaders that are watching, but may not be as familiar as you are, obviously, with blockchain. In addition to World Economic Forum, what are the resources? Where do you go to learn? <laughs> are they authors? Are they lecturers? Business leaders? How do you, as the head of blockchain? <laughs> for, how do I stay up to speed? Yeah, yeah, you know, three three letter I mean, agencies. Uh, you know, yeah, I know, right? Like, well, in addition to like the microphones I have installed and everyone, you know. <laughs> no, I think it's you know, it's it's a uh, it's an area where I think I think the first thing I would say is give yourself a break. And I kind of alluded to this earlier. You don't need to be a cryptography expert. You don't need to understand how to program and slow. You know, these are all. It's fine, right? I think what's important is to really understand what is fitness for purpose with the blockchain. Like, when is it appropriate and when is it not? What can it do for you? And so I would honestly say, and I say this, you know, not mean to be self-congratulatory, I actually think our paper, Blockchain Beyond the Hype, is the best first step for anyone who wants to learn about this technology. Because it's not yet another Blockchain 101. I mean, you can Google that. There's a, I'm sure there's Khan Academy, Coursera, you know, there's MOOCs out there. But they're, gonna, they're all good. I mean, most of them are, I'm sure some are better than others. But they're all going to get you what you need to know, sure. right? There's a ton of books out there. You know, my advice would honestly be go on your preferred provider and just look at the reviews and see, you know, what's getting the most traction. There's a lot of them out there. But if you really want to know what is this for, should I even, why should I care about it? I think that our paper, Blockchain Beyond Hype, is going to be a super easy, quick way, you know, 20 minutes of wrestling with it to get you started. And then you're going to have a sense of what should I be investing in learning about the technology versus eh, other things to do with my day. Is there a conference wow. going to uh, in, in the near future that perhaps? Actually, we should just invite her to CCE. We should invite you. We, we got <laughs> a blockchain that was automatic. Yeah. We yeah, got a blockchain I, panel. I speak, I speak at lots of stuff. <laughs> so how should, I'm, I mean, next November week 5th. is. 
Yeah, next week is SF Blockchain Week. So I definitely recommend people come on over. You know, there's SF Blockchain Week. There's a blockchain week in almost every major major city. New York's got one called Consensus. There's one in Tel Aviv. There's one in, they're all over the place, right? So I would say go to one. They're always, and every one of these, of these blockchain weeks, they have like an entry path. You can just kind of show up and they'll be like a, hey, newbie, you know, come on over here and we'll, you know, come over here and we'll, you know, with the candy, you know, like kind of thing, right? We'll get you, we'll get you started. So I think, um, I think that would be what I would say is a place yeah. to go. And if, you know, maybe your CEO doesn't want to go, but you should send the people on your team who are really motivated. They're going to learn an awful lot. Sure. Well, no, but hey, on a serious note, if you're free November 5th, we've got an awesome panel. It's a uh, blockchain lessons learned from blockchain success and failure. It's at oh, the Half Moon Bay Ritz. Uh, open invitation to you to come. We'll follow yeah, up afterwards. Thank you. And we'd love to have you there. We have 200 CXOs gathered together at the Half Moon Bay Ritz for three days of uh, these are all early adopters, it's innovators, and change agents. Inventors. Surf is there. Yeah. yeah, I love it. Well, I love Half Moon Bay. I will check my calendar. I have a feeling I'm meant to be in Malaga uh, with the World Bank doing something in Spain. But if I'm in town, I will be there. I will be there. Thank Malaga, Half Moon Bay. I don't know. <laughs> I know. That, that and if not, I'll see if someone on my team can make it down because that's a wonderful opportunity. It sounds fantastic. That'd be great. We are here with Sheila Warren, head of blockchain <laughs> and distributed ledger technology at the World Economic Forum. You can follow on Twitter at Sheila, S-H-E-I-L-A underscore Warren, W-A-R-R-E-N. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much. So Thank fun. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Very, very cool. For those listening on radio, we are coast to coast, we hear. So we're not sure which radio stations, but thank you so much for listening. And of course, follow us at Disrupt TV Show on Twitter. And of course, we've got our next guest. Who do we have, Olive? It's our privilege to have someone who's going to really talk to us about practical, powerful, impactful use of distributed ledgers and blockchain technology. Dr. Philip Wong is a special advisor to CIO at Arizona State University and a faculty affiliate. Dr. Long provides leadership in the development of Trusted Learner Network, the Trusted Learner Record, designing verifiable credentials, and the future of distributed identity services, along with other emerging technologies. Dr. Long is also a senior fellow at Georgetown University Center for New Designs in Learning and Scholarship. His current work focuses on blockchain and certification, documenting competencies and credentials, learning analytics, emerging technologies, and design of physical learning spaces. He's the founder of RHZ Consulting, where he brings his interest to collaborate with others to turn their work and challenges into business success stories. I'm gonna learn more about it in the next 20, 20 minute segment. You can follow Dr. Long on Twitter at R-A-D-H-E-R-T-Z. Welcome, uh, Dr. Long, to uh, Disrupt TV. Thank you for having me. It's just a pleasure, and the first two guests have been terrific, so I hope I can do a decent job at the cleanup here. Oh, no, not at all, man. You guys are wonderful. <laughs> we're, we're talking about trusted learner networks and records, man. This is awesome, right? I mean, it is. think about this. Start, start about how you got this concept, thinking about it, and, and, and what that means to, uh, you know, just to the average person. And, and before you start, can you, I would love to know your points of view on the 60-year curriculum. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, well, I'll start with the 60-year curriculum, and in part because I actually was privileged to be able to be a part of those workshops that, um, that Hunt had been putting together. And so, um, you know, it... it it's an idea that's um, been out there and floating around and waiting for that catalyst to sort of give something to allow you to sort of talk about it clearly. Um, Hunt mentioned the idea that there is a particular problem in many ways with our current uh, thinking about higher ed and educational practices. And, and that, that problem is that there is a million ways to fail and only one way to succeed. That is, you can start a program, and the only way that you can actually can be considered successful is if you finish the degree, if you finish the, the whatever the, the terminus is, right, mm -hmm. of that program. And yet, there are a million other things in people's lives, not just the higher education that they're engaged in. And mm -hmm. we need to figure out ways to give them opportunities to, to succeed along the way. So the 60-year curriculum, in many ways, was starting to rethink this in terms of, well, how do we take this thing and, and chunk it down into smaller but meaningful, coherent pieces? And you want to end at a, after a period of study or, or, or uh, engagement with some tangible thing that you can point to that you got from that. 
but we've always sort of had this tablet that was handed to us um, metaphorically that said, thou shalt have 16 week <laughs> curriculum um, and it's called a semester and thou shalt have that semester two times in Brit, you know, and, and, and it just kind of goes on and on. Uh, and we've, and that made sense in an industrialization uh, world where we're moving from an agricultural society into a, an industrialized society. Right. And it made sense for lots of other reasons. Um, but it doesn't make sense today at all. And, and so, um, so the 60 year curriculum really is thinking about how do you enable people, how do you reach people when they need the interest and help at the level where they are. And that's one of the things I think that ASU has been um, sort of trying to embody in its notion of success is who we include, not who we exclude. And that's sort of the mantra that um, that uh, Dr. Crow and the institution has been has been trying to live for the last um, you know 15 or 20 years at least, mm -hmm. and that that's really a, a powerful notion because people come in from all different starting points, and you can't expect them to be able to all proceed at the same pace, right. and yet you think about a class, you've got this period of time and you have a starting point and you, you, even if you got everybody sort of homogeneously arranged by virtue of selection criteria at the starting point, they're never gonna finish at the same place, mm -hmm. right? It's not gonna happen. And yet we have no other, we have not done anything other than teach to the mythical student, right? That, that archetype of a student right. and there's not a single one in any class I've ever been. Right. That's, that student doesn't exist. <laughs> the mythical student and the mythical right? student curriculum. <laughs> right. Well, we had that in the, in, the, in, the, in the business world when we had the mythical man month when, uh, when, when it came to figuring out how much work and effort it took to, to put a project together. And all of this work led to this trusted learner network. So talk to us about what that means. Sure. Sure. So, so the idea that we've been sort of working on is we have to give a way to disintermediate the institutions, the issuers of learning and, and, and credentials from the person. And, and we've all talked about this for 15 or 20 years in terms of learner-centric uh, pedagogical practices and designs and learner-centric this and that. Right. Um, the problem is, is we've never really turned the keys over. And so, and so what we have is, it's learner-centric, but by the way, in this particular peculiar relationship with credentials and learning, you're the party that is the least trusted, right? You can send something to an employer and say, I've done all of this, now, who knows like, you? Yeah, yeah, right. It looks like my no, LinkedIn profile. Exactly. You know, I can say, you know, how many how many people are graduated from MIT and LinkedIn? I mean, it's thirty percent of them. So, you know, so it's, there's actually so thirty percent more than actually graduated. Absolutely, I've never been, you know, born. Uh, no, it's it's a problem, and so. And, and so the trusted learner network uh, idea came about to say, look, we have to give agency to the learner. If we're going to do this, you really need to give agency. That means we need a place to put these credentials that people can believe are actually secure, authentic, and viable, right? That the institution doesn't have to vouch for themselves to say, yes, I issued that back in, you know, it's 1973. It is in fact from us. Um, and as Hunt and, and, uh, and Sheila have both pointed out, the volatility of the learning and work environment is such that we can expect individuals to go through um, a period of 40 to 60 to 65 years worth of work, but it'll be much more episodic. It'll be from dozens of different providers. Sure, Hunt would like to have them come back to Harvard and ASU would like to have them come back to ASU, but we know that that's, you know, we want to be there for them, but they're going to need to find the things that they need when and where they are that are most suited. And we may not be that right source for that moment. Yet the individual is the narrative owner. Right. The, that's the whole thing. The individual has got to tell their own narrative with verifiable pieces of data that will back up that narrative. So where does that have to live? So the trusted learner network is, in, another, in other words, a place to put that data in a way that it can be verified and validated as true and honest. And then it's the learner's job to tell the narrative of who they are with it. And until we can get there, then we haven't really done the job that we've been start trying to do all this time to say the learner has agency. That's great. Unless the yep. learner has agency yep. that means something they can do, right. then it doesn't really matter. Right? So that's the, tr the trusted learner network. That now, as Sheila had mentioned, the technology is rapidly moving and it's not any different in the blockchain space. We've started off in partnering with uh, Salesforce in this particular effort. Um, and we started off unlike in the cryptocurrency uh, world, with a, which is based on public 
permissionless blockchains and with the expectation that the players in the blockchain will be essentially untrustworthy. Um, so the technology has to build in the reason for computational trust, right? In our case, we actually think that there is an important set of trust relationships that are out of boundary, that are, that are actually pre-existing. Institutions, for example, have relationships amongst each other, have nothing to do with blockchain, right. but, which are, but, but which are over the years uh, establishing credibility and, and confidence in each other's ability to deliver on various things. And we think the trusted learner network needs to actually augment that with computational trust, not replace it. Right. And so we start off with a trusted environment that is a permission blockchain, which allows us to put PII data, personally identifiable information, into the, into the blockchain with, with reasonable confidence. The whole mantra of the public environment in the, in the permissionless blockchain is just don't go there. Don't mm. put PII data because it's transparent. It's readable. Anybody can see it. Well, that's great. And that's, and that's useful for a particular kind of and set of transactions or use cases. In our case, we want stories of people's lives, experiences, aspirations, and achievements. That's personal. And so we have to put that stuff somewhere. So we've created this trusted learner network that stores things in a blockchain. Interestingly, because the blockchain is primarily for structured data, there's a lot of valid and important attributes of your experience that are unstructured. That might be videos, music, uh, computational programs that you've written. They need to be accessible too. So in our environment, the blockchain has the node of the, of, the, of the traditional blockchain environment, but it also has an IPFS node. And the IPFS is the distributed file system, the interplanetary file system. The idea is we can hash link physical objects in the, in the file system. So you still have the trust and authenticity, but now we can put big bit buckets worth of stuff. If you're a person that did a project that was about um, control systems and drones, then you might want to have the software that you wrote for the test harness that did something that, that validated that particular control system worked. And then someone who's looking to hire you can say, okay, I've got this record. He said he did this. And by the way, if I have the interest, and that's an area that I'm really trying to fill, I can take a look at that. It's not just a claim. It's so not. So we're at the beginning of how these distributed applications and infrastructures are going to be um, designed developed, governed, maintained, secured. This is actually pretty exciting. It's extremely exciting and really scary, which makes it fun. Um, because, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that at, uh, we just did a presentation at EDUCAUSE, the, the large international meeting of higher education technology uh, professionals. And we asked people to come to Phoenix in, uh, in March 2nd of 2020 to have the first convening of a trust network learner community. Yeah. Uh, we need to have as much diversity and in, in, in live up to our notion of inclusion here too, to have as much diversity of voice and perspective to help us understand where the use cases really exist for this and where other technologies can do a much, a much better job. I mean, when I first came to ASU, the, the question that, that Lev Ghanak, the CIO, was asking is, is there a there there? <laughs> you know, we, we've got this bobble. Everybody's interested in this new bobble. You know, if you've got a new piece of a new juice can, we got to put it on the blockchain. If you've got a cabbage, we've got to put it on the blockchain. Um, but the reality is, is that there are certain things that the blockchain seems to do really well. And if it has provenance involved, if there's truth that you have to know the background, the whole history to, if there is um, the problem of the issue of wanting to maintain that, that immutable record, if there is the idea that this thing is going to have some degree of verifiable trust that is actually immutable, then the blockchain comes as a candidate for this kind of work. And so we're trying to build something that has the blockchain as infrastructure. Our first application is actually the data model that encapsulates that 60-year learner curriculum and life but extends it to job skills or clusters of job skills that extends it to um, attributes associated with your preferences. So ASU has been leading in, in doing assessments with something called the RIASAC model. The, the product is called ME3, but it basically yeah. identifies six dimensions of work priorities or work interests. And mm -hmm. then they've mapped their curriculum back to those six areas. So when someone says, I, you know, I like to work outside and do this kind of thing, 
um, then they can say, well, in our curriculum, these are the kind of attributes that make sense. You should be a bioscientist. No, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, come to think, uh, you haven't looked at my resume. My original job and my original profession was as a behavioral ecologist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I did. I did see that. I did see that. So, 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 let's, let's project 10 years from now. Will the trusted learner network be the most impactful, most efficient way of employers finding employees? Um, it, it, will it be the vehicle that delivers personalization at scale in terms of the different career paths that will guide undergraduate graduate students so that you know they, there's, there's not only a, a competency fit, but understanding that this is meaningful work and work that will bring you joy. And this is, you know, I, I didn't speak to a career counselor until my last semester graduate year. So <laughs> at almost 90% of graduate, I didn't speak to someone that could guide my career. And uh, you know, I would have been maybe raised you if I had better consult. Well, I don't know. It's, it seems to have served you very well. Yeah. I think you're done fine, Exactly. Why would you go to a LinkedIn or why would you use traditional methods of like, connecting, you know, employees to employers? other than a trusted learner network where throughout your learning journey, if there's certain competency that you have that can be beneficial to an employer, they can tap you and, and, and gain from your insights and, and, and you have this mutually beneficial relationship. Yeah, I think it's gonna be one of the most powerful invisible technologies in, of, of the next decade. Um, I mean, the truth is, as Sheila, I think correctly pointed out, this is a technology that in its greatest and most powerful implementation is completely unseen. And, uh, and, and the individuals using it will have no idea that's what's underneath. Right. Um, but it is the place where I think that the resume of the future is going to be built. It is the place where um, our ability to express things that we have learned outside of formal training, right. but, to, but to assert, I believe I have the competency of this. Here is some evidence that suggests it. And by the way, here are three endorsers who have their own um, validation in terms of their skills and their right. background that you can check on. That, that says that, that I have achieved that. That unstructured data that you referenced, you know, it could be the last three deposits into GitHub that demonstrate right. more than yep. anything else in terms of grades in a class your competency and opportunity to find jobs. So that data is, is super important. It is. In fact, I, I, I expect in this particular space that GitHub and blockchain are gonna get, gonna get married in some fashion because oh, yeah. you need to be able to validate that. You know, it's the same problem that you have anytime collaboration happens in a team, right? Oh. Who's responsible for what? Right. Right. And it's checked. It's free from malware. It's secure. It's going to be right. working. It's scaled. Right. And, it, and that's the original set of the code. All right. right. Well, here we're here with Dr. Philip Long, special advisor at Arizona State University and senior scholar at the CNDLS, where they take bridging the gulf between historic pedagogy and technological advances. I think that's what you guys say at Georgetown University. So you can follow him on Twitter at Rad Hertz, R-A-D-H-E-R-T-Z. Think about that. So, all right. Hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks so much sharing about this trusted learning network. That's really a pleasure. And really enjoyed your, your, your other guests as well. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Ray. Um, Boom. My, Just like that. My head is spinning. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I mean, literally all three guests we could have talked to for an entire hour. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's amazing. Uh, who, who said this? Was it William Gibson, the future is already here, just unevenly distributed? I mean, people are working on some amazing breakthrough technology that could have profound impact as much as the internet or the smartphone or social networks. And, uh, you know, it, it may feel like it's the web in late 90s when we talk about blockchain distributed ledger, but before you know it, it's going to impact every company, every sector, every geography. Wow. Hey, you know, and uh, before we do the wrap up here, just a quick note, uh, you know, rest in peace to Mark Hurd. Uh, amazing, very, very interesting career. Uh, when he got to Oracle, he uh, transformed Oracle uh, in a way that's uh, never been seen before, uh, changing the way the sales culture works, changing the way the leadership works there, putting a personal touch to Oracle. It was very, very different at Oracle. I think Larry Ellison gave him a chance to remake himself uh, and he did so at Oracle. And so, uh, you know, Hats off to him and uh, you know, condolences to him and his families. Very so, yeah, sad so to hear at 862. So really, oh. yeah, time passes. Make sure you hug a loved one. 
Um, so who do we have on next week's show as we're coast to coast on radio stations around the country and of course live on uh, iTunes uh, as well as uh, SoundCloud. Uh, we have, I believe, episode 168, if I'm correct. Uh, our world-class producer will let you know. Uh, but we have Trisha Wong, co-founder of Sudden Compass. Uh, anybody who's heard Trisha speak and present, she's amazing. Uh, super smart and uh, really lifts the room. Uh, we have Esteban Kolsky, another person that lifts the room, <laughs> principal and founder of ThinkJar. And uh, one of our favorites, uh, Steve Wilson, who's Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. And he's been writing and uh, re researching distributed ledgers and privacy and security and ethical use of technology. So a world-renowned expert um, in those arenas. So it's going to be an amazing show. It's going to be fast-paced. So bring your popcorn, fasten your seat. A quick shout out to Phil Kamarni for setting up this uh, awesome lineup. And then, of course, with Constellation Connected Enterprise, November 4th through 7th, watch for the tweets under the hashtag CCE2019. Five shows left till 2019. So check out who we do it. So check us out on Vimeo, SoundCloud, YouTube, and iTunes. So if it's Friday, let's disrupt TV. Have an awesome Friday, everyone. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. Thank mm -hmm. you.